Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Olunike Adelie, an actor you may have seen in Flashpoint, Working Moms, and Saw 3D, among dozens of other credits. She was nominated for Canadian Screen Award as Best Supporting Actress for her role in Boost, and she can currently be seen as the warrior Kali in Audrey Cummings' new thriller Darken which is screening in Toronto, Calgary, Ottawa, St. Catharines, Whitby, and Winnipeg through Friday, July 6th. Olunike chose Boys in the Hood, the revelatory look at life in south-central Los Angeles from writer-director John Singleton. It introduced audiences to Cuba Gooding Jr., Ice Cube, and Morris Chestnut, expanded the conversation about African-American families, and sadly was shadowed by the real-life violence it tries to stand against. Singleton won newcomer prizes from the New York Film Critics Circle and the Los Angeles Film Critics Association and was nominated for Oscars for Best Original Screenplay and Best Director. At 24, still the youngest person to be nominated in either of those categories. I should point out as well that we recorded this on a really hot afternoon, which is probably why my brain wasn't quite where it could have been. This is why I keep insisting the movie was released in 1992 instead of 1991, but it gets sharper once I hydrate. This is someone else's movie. Firsts. And it's like all around. We can we can move into the discussion of firsts because even every single actor, like young actor in that movie, was the first time they ever did it. They'd yeah. never acted before. Yeah, could you imagine? And now they're all hugely famous. Kind of striking to me that that the only the only famous people were Angela Bassett and and Norse Fishburne. Fishburne. Yeah, yeah. That was it. <laughs> and they're all huge, not just a little bit. They're all huge. Yeah, so this is 1992 when this film comes out, mm-hmm. and Gooding wins the Oscar four years later for Jerry Maguire. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ice Cube's already Ice Cube. Right. But he hadn't acted. But he hadn't acted. Yeah. And right. by that same point in 96, I think he made at least one of the Friday films, right? Like, this is the launching Yes, for... I think this was the, the beginnings of yeah. when he decided that he was going to do Friday. And yeah. then Friday blew up for him, and then he just became this movie mogul yeah. as well. And Chestnut, too? Chestnut's still huge. Yeah. He's still a big star. But it, this was his first film? This was his first film. Same with Nia Long. This was her first film. That's right. Yeah. So he basically just... I mean, I'm old enough that I remember seeing a, a preview screening a month or two before it opened. Wow. Uh, Columbia Pictures was really high on it, and they brought. they basically invited the press who hadn't seen it at whichever film festival it was at mm-hmm. to come and see it. And it tore my heart out. It was well yeah. <laughs> so what was your first experience? When did you first see oh, it? I saw it when I was in high school. Okay. Um when it released in ninety two. And uh, I was with friends. I remember going to the movie theater with friends. I had never known anything about black America. Because <laughs> I'm like Nigerian and Jamaican. So I know that life. I know that world. I know Canadian life. But sure. I don't know anything about what black America was experiencing. You know, Compton or South Central. Like even like all the ghettos of New York and Philly and all the different states. Clueless. So I see this and it it just rocked my core. To a point where it was it was um, it was traumatizing for me. I thought because I was like, why, why is any everybody sitting around and allowing this stuff to happen? This 
black on black crime like this, you know? And then I love the way Lawrence Fishburne kind of breaks it down to his son and his friend is like, you know, there's a reason for it and it's historic, you know? It's, we've been um, positioned to put, um, to be put against each other, to basically grab whatever scraps there is, is because of the history with slavery and and um, and then he explains why do you think that there's like a liquor store on every corner, you know, or a gun shop, or just it, it, they, these are the reasons, or these are the reasons why it keeps a community down. And I was like, me, I think I was, I don't know, like 15, 16, sitting there going. And then the part when like when uh, we fall in love with the characters so much, and then Ricky dies, it just yeah. So it was a big deal. Um, it was a big deal. Even to this day, even when, when they were hanging out on Crenshaw, do you remember that time when they were hanging out on Crenshaw? And they were talking about if God was a bitch, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Why God, why God gotta be a bitch, though? I'm just saying, God was a bitch, and they go into this whole speech. But I remember when they're, when someone said, you know, like, what's up? And then one of the the, um, the gentlemen that always had the soother in his mouth he's like the sun the moon and the stars and shit and I yeah. still say that today <laughs> when everybody says hey what's up the sun the moon and the stars and shit and they're like where's that from I'm like you know you just you do know because it's something that just kind of kind of stayed in the psyche yeah I mean to connect with the film it, whatever the circumstance it's always I find like, if you saw something in high school that really touched you it stays with you forever it there's something stays about with you forever. like you're impressionable you're a sponge for everything like that but, but also to see I mean it was it was revelatory for all, for everybody everyone uh, at the time people were talking about Singleton as the next I mean the Spike he was comparison. 19 yeah that's it right he's, a <laughs> he's film nominated sc- for an Oscar film school brat basically who suddenly mm-hmm does this thing that he had clearly wanted to do since he was, I think, 12 or something he'd been talking about making movies. Yeah. That part of his, his, his mythology. And to come out of the gate with this thing, which is gorgeous, like beautiful to look at, mm-hmm. stunningly photographed, and also um, positioned by a major studio for release to right. be mainstreamed right out of the gate, and also to be dealing with stuff that people did not know how to deal with not just yeah i mean spike lee was making jungle fever that's the new york version but it's so stylized and so i mean almost cartoonish in its depiction of an environment uh especially after the hyper realism of do the right thing people were already starting to go "Eh, i don't know that i really he feels like he's going over the top there was a lot of conversation about how it was you know like that final shot in jungle fever where it spins out the camera shooting right Right. into sam jackson's or um no it wasn't sam jackson's the other gentleman with the isn't the other gentleman with the big mustache? I think oh. he passed really recently. No, that can't be right. I'm thinking of the wrong person. Oh, uh, shoot. This is what happens when I don't prep for everything. It's okay. But the big like the big ending with, you know, looking into the camera and screaming, no, this right. this was the antidote. This was the perceived as the real world version from the West Coast because even though it's you know, it's more violent, it's more explicitly um graphic in its depiction of violence it still felt real it played as mm-hmm. real oh yeah and it, and it, it, you know how real it got right because you know well, there people were died people shooting each other in theaters yeah although apparently but because that was... they were because you know you people are going to the theaters that you belong to different gangs 
everybody wants to see it so you have the bloods and the crips there and it's like ooh, yeah yeah it people died a lot of people died yeah it was a I mean, I remember it being kind of played up and then almost immediately played down. I, there was talk right. about bringing security guards into theaters here in Toronto, which is always yes, I remember kind that. of adorable and silly. When I know, I, but I remember decides. that when because of what was happening in America, yeah, that, that uh, they were thinking about like what what about the safety of the people here? Because I mean, we do have Bloods and Crips here in Toronto as well. But in 1992, we didn't we have did. quite so many guns, though. Right? No, I mean, there were, no, the odds no. of being shot yeah. at a movie theater were far far lower. I'm sure than right. they are now. But, uh, and they weren't in a lot of theaters here. Yeah, that's you true. Know they, I mean? they, they weren't. scaled back the theaters as well, really, yeah. uh, in, for fear of violence, which is always so weirdly... Like, but it's, it's a reality. So... The thing is, it's like, oh, shouldn't predict that, right? Like, that's not fair. But, I mean, I've been around enough shootings in Toronto yeah. in my lifetime to know that it's possible. Yeah. You know? It's happened. Sure. So, I mean, it's not something that should be taken lightly no. guns are a big deal right mm-hmm. and right now we have a huge gun problem in toronto i think it's more yeah well i'm certainly it's, it's more prevalent that. now um yeah it's it's yeah it's romance right like the, romance. selling the idea of having a gun has always been attractive and now they're apparently easier and cheaper to get so i don't yeah. know I'm, i mean we don't live in america yeah well then also there's that anything can happen yeah well and with boys in the hood too the idea that that the threat of violence followed the film mm-hmm. became part of the marketing as well. Like this mm-hmm. is a dangerous film, yeah. And there's kind of a vaguely racist response to that when when the media starts buzzing about how the black movie is having all the shootings. But right. in that case, it was yeah. very specific to the subject matter because they had to tell the truth. Yeah, right? and there are shootings in the film. There, are, there are gang. There is gang violence. That's what the movie's about. Yeah, absolutely. So and 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 I always imagine. I remember, like even at the very end of the film, of how excited people were about the violence. Right. That's. Do you remember thing. that? I do. That everybody was like screaming and hollering, kind of like the end of Get Out. Yeah. <laughs> it was like wow. Yeah, and that somehow that violence serves as a, a catharsis, but it's because we felt like released of that that sadness that anger from that that boy dying yeah but it's so odd and I think it's intentional in the film and it's so strange to see a movie that has spent like a hundred minutes discussing nonviolence and avoidance and breaking the cycle right to then have a character fall into the a same cycle. exact thing mm-hmm. but then have it still pay off I mean there's the my audience was uh, they seeded it with kids from, um, I'm not sure where they, they were from, but it was a screening room that was generally used for critics, and then it was a, maybe a 40-seat f- a room, mm-hmm. and, a, and a number of high school students were invited for the screening to give us the appropriate atmosphere, I guess, wow. or maybe because it was a test screening, and they were going crazy for Doughboy just straight up assassinating people. I mean, yeah. that scene where he guns down a wounded man and kills a wounded man. Yeah, and we, we all know in that moment, though, that he was going to go eventually. Oh, sure. And, and I like the way that they, they played that. Yeah. It's like, you know, he had a lot of remorse, but then, like, eventually you just saw him fade away. Just knew that. Yeah. That was his time. It's a quality of Ice Cubes that he doesn't get to do very often, but to just turn himself off the way he can tamp down his charisma and just go blank. Mm-hmm. He makes it great heavy. He's, oh, yeah, big time. Yeah, there was this, and I think the same year he was in Walter Hill's movie, Trespass. Trespass. Yes, I remember that. And he was just a straight villain. There was no context, no no, no layering to him. Yeah. But he was really good He was it. like that in um, 
Was it Three Kings? No, not really. I think he's so. Not the like, bad he, guy he, in Three he's Kings. not the bad guy, but he was he was dialed down a lot from the Ice yeah. Cube we know. We just you know we just see him as a soldier. That's yeah, that's true. He sort of has equal footing with um, with with Clooney. It's quite Clooney, generous. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good movie too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's always been a better actor than people give him credit for, and I think it's because once he started doing comedies, it's perceived it, as an it easier went muscle. To a whole right? other way, yeah. The yeah. whole um, are we there? Yeah, yet? I was gonna I say. Like, oh god, the Friday movies. Like, like what happened? Great. And then he and turned then... into this other um, stereotype of he's just oh the angry guy in in. In these stereotypical movies, these comedies, like you know, yeah, the it's early, like, it's like it's cuddly family guy again. again. But his son is doing well too. So yeah, he's in. Yeah. Uh, what did I just see him in? Uh, Den of Thieves, I think he's in that with uh, George oh. Butler. And oh, nice. Uh, yeah, he's got he a did a good really part. good job playing his dad. It could have gone left. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? when you heard about the casting, because I mean, you, you're like, born into money. You're born into money. Sure, it's really but, hard. Like you're born into money, but. Who else can play yeah. Ice Cube? But I wonder yeah. if it's just something like you can get your you can get your parents' attitude without ever knowing how they live. I oh yeah, playing your own parent is a weird. It's a weird dynamic. Yeah, because like my mom is very subdued. She's very quiet. She's very. It's everything is a little soft giggle, and her side of the family was always um, wondering where I got this like loud. <laughs> rambunctious you know um, way about me I'm just energetic and I just like to have fun and you know, I was wondering too, but my, my dad is like that maybe that's it but when I finally went to Nigeria I went oh where here I am okay everyone's expressive and fun and big like that and so for a long time I thought I was like the black sheep and I was just maybe on couth and you know it was crazy and that's why I became an artist but then I was outdid <laughs> Oh, yeah, Nigeria. I mean, they were expressive. It was beautiful to watch how big they were. Unapologetic. I mean, uh, yeah, unapologetically. Just big. And, like, just kings and queens. And I was just like, well, there's why I do that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm never apologizing for being me again. So is it just a question of scale? Like, performance is, is part of the personality? Yeah, I think it's just, it's just, it's in me. It's, it's ancestral. Hmm. It's ancestral, you know. It's not just me. It's definitely inherited. Okay. Yeah, and so I, no matter what I do, I don't apologize for it because I bring the ancestors with me. Oh, nice. Yeah. So as far as I'm just veering back into yeah, to Boys in the Hood and its depiction of, of family, um, people are away a lot. People are working. People are out of the home. People are busy. And this, I. I, I don't think we'd really seen that before either. Uh, when when Nelson George did the show a couple of years ago, he picked Sparkle, uh, the ah. first film, the '76 version, yeah, and said that it was you know like it was sold as a black exploitation movie right. at the time, and he went to see it with his friends in Times Square, and they just saw a family in a kitchen making dinner, and it, they'd never seen that sort of representation of their own lives of, of how a family would be in a movie before. Right. Because all those dinner table scenes had been white people before. Mm-hmm. Um, Boys in the Hood has, uh, you know, it arrives at a point where people have been making movies with black casts, and that's not a new thing. But the the way that it kind of 
unpacks family relationships in, in South Central and, and right. specifically how absent parents contribute to the problem of the appeal of gangs. I think that was new. I mean, I think that I don't know if it was it was new in film. Yeah, it had been, but like, it was TV had universal. It. Yeah, yeah, I'm used to that. Like my mom is a nurse; she mm. was always at work. You know, but I'm lucky to be born in Canada sure. that I, and in the suburbs. So it couldn't get into too much, you know, stupid little fun, but like not where it would cost me my life, right? Um, and I didn't grow up with my father, so as I came from a single parent home, like mm-hmm. my father and I, more in my late teens is that we kind of re- reestablished a relationship. But that's why I related to that film because I understood it was always like get to your books, get to your books, but it was not always the parent that was always there to make sure that that happened, right? You know, because. They have to go to work. They do. And my mom's job is so demanding, of course. Um, so, yeah, um, that is something new that was in film. But it was kind of exposing what has been happening in black families for a long time. And it's still, it dates back to so much history. You know, black, black mothers have been single you know, a lot of kids come from single parent homes of black moms. Sure. <clears throat> and, and that mom would have a few kids sometimes. I mean, in Boys and Hoes, one. But like, but they showed you different families, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, uh, that has been a constant for centuries. Um, because of the separation of the mother and father. Sure. Coming out of um, being sold through slavery. And, you know, so that just... Um, it continued throughout history. And so right now, the modern days, like the single black mom, she's doing the best she can. And her doing the best she can, she still could end up with dead children. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> something that's coming around a lot lately. Uh, I mean, obviously it is, right? Mm-hmm. Because thanks to social media and, and the prevalence of camera phones, like we, we've now, we're, we're past the point where you can sort of wave off the idea that it doesn't. Police, it's yeah, not that police treat black yeah, people and white like, no. people the same. Yeah, no. It's just <laughs> yeah, and it's it's awful. Um, yeah. like, and it happens in Canada too. I mean, yeah. without a doubt. And the idea that you can do everything right and still end up in that situation. In that, that situation. That, and the, and the like, idea that you that need was to do in. Remember when that was in Boys in the Hood? Yeah. When Trey got pulled over. Yeah. He didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, I think that. Was and that was a black cop. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's the Which internalized. That's the Los Angeles right. experience, right? right? I am trying to figure out if I've told this story on the on the podcast before. My first trip to Los Angeles was in the summer of 1992, mm-hmm. and I was there to cover a home video launch of some of uh, John Cassavetes films at the AFI, mm-hmm. and I was staying at a hotel on Sunset, and I figured out that I could walk it because I've never been to Los Angeles before. I might as well walk along Sunset because it's only a mile and it's beautiful yeah. out, and I got pulled over. Right. Uh, because I I don't know I was I had an iced tea in my hand or something I have no idea why but the the a police car pulled me over on Sunset Boulevard and just said Do you need help? Um, wow, he I asked said, you if you needed help. Yeah, specifically. Not where are you going? Can right. I see? Right. And the context of that stop yeah. was really. It wasn't until later that I thought that was a weird thing to ask. Yeah. Because I'm just I'm walking east. I'm not in. I wasn't injured. I was dressed appropriately. I, I wasn't. I wasn't doing anything wrong, mm-hmm. but also I was perceived to be out of. I, and it turns out it's just because nobody walks in LA. 
and it was weird. Right. Apparently. No one does. But no. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're on Hollywood Boulevard. Which yeah, is and like that's a different gross. purpose. <laughs> you're walking with a reason. Yeah, and I've had my um my um situation in LA because when I was living there, and it's probably the reason why I was like, I'm out, I'm done yeah. here. Because it, it, it's not fun hearing those, um, we call them ghetto birds, the helicopters. Oh, yeah. It's constant. It's constant. That's the sound of L.A., you know? Um, but I remember coming home from the movies um, with some friends. And, um, but I was riding with a white gentleman in the car. And so the police was making a left turn at the lights. And I went through the lights, but they changed their mind and came and pulled me over. And I was like, okay, cool. Tapped on my window with their gun. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I was like, what the? They're like, roll down the window, let's, uh, your license and registration. I was like, okay, here you go. And I was thinking, well, I don't, couldn't possibly know why they would. And my hair was really low then, too. Mm -hmm. So I also looked like a black gentleman. I could have been passing because my hair's so low. Okay. Right? Um, when they came, when uh, the officer came back and another uh, woman was standing on the other side, she's like, how do you guys know each other? We're like, we're Canadian. We came here. We're Canadians. <laughs> yeah. We're visiting, you know? They're like, okay, well, do you know that this car has a warrant? And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Why would it have a warrant? It's a rental car. Yeah. <laughs> really? And he's like, well, you need to have it checked out, you know, because there's a warrant on the car. And I was like, officer... If there was a warrant on the car, you wouldn't. You would have had me out of the car already. Yeah. So what was this? I mean, they, they, they just said just bluffing as, you, as you were go. They just pulled me over because I was black. Yeah. And I was because I was like, dude, he, they would have taken the car. You would think they would have taken the car if had a warrant. Yeah. So it's just part of this casual intimidation, right? Of yeah. course it's. And but, I was like, there. I go. So here I am, a regular person. Not in any kind of weird, uh, you know, groupings or gangs or any affiliation with the underworld in any way. Right. And I could easily lose my life. Like, he's tapping on the window with a gun. So that could have gone off. Yeah, no, that's just bad form. <laughs> like, <laughs> why? incredibly dangerous. Yeah, so I was like, you know what? No, I'm not interested. Because I'm a mom. I'm a mom. Mm. And I needed to make sure that my life was was preserved for her. Like, I can't do this to her. I can't be in America to do what? To chase what? I was like, nah, I can have my career in Canada. <laughs> that's, it was interesting to me. God, that's horrible. But that's... That's horrible. Yeah. And that's the... I mean, obviously, that's the milieu of Boys in the Hood. That's that's the world that they're showing us right. in this sort of hyper-intensified way. Yes. But I don't... I mean, I know I can't understand. I cannot comprehend being raised that way, learning the... You know, learning how to make sure you don't do any, you know, like the whole, make sure they always see your hands, make sure that you don't do mm -hmm. anything that gives the police an excuse. I don't trust police officers, but yeah. I'm not afraid of them in the right. same way that these people, these characters are in the film. And, and I grew up and the people raised to being me. taught not to trust them. Yeah. Like to be careful if you need to ask any questions, you need help, find a woman, you know. A woman police officer no, specifically? Just, just a, a woman. woman. Okay. Not police officers at all because you don't know what could happen. Yeah. Because um, I've had friends that had traumatic situations when they were just like 14 and 15 and oh just God. pulled over and being called the N-word or monkey or all of that. And Oh, yeah. I mean, I know it so happens, it's like, but it's it happens in Canada. We have yeah. the illusion in Canada that we're better, but we're really not. No, no. But we are a little better. <laughs> but we're not. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. But, like, it could be 
it could be worse. Yeah, but yeah, so like, yeah, with watching Boys in the Hood being a teenager like that, like I hadn't been exposed yet. Right. Right? I hadn't been exposed because I'm living in La La Land, you know, with, you know, pretty, um, a pretty great, a household, um, academics as family family members are all academics, so you know, I just grew up a particular way. Even in Jamaica, when I grew up with my grandparents, it was like all academics. I was raised on the farm and so this just rocked my world. And because of that movie is why I, I just fantasized even more of wanting to be a performer. Mm. I was like that. Like to be able to affect somebody like that and over over again it never it, the the blow was never softened. The, the the more times I watched the film. Did you see it theatrically more than once? Did you get the chance? Cause it was, I did. It was I think I went while. to the theater eight times. Wow. Yeah, eight times. And um, and then I ended up owning it. And and yeah, I watch it all the time. I, I think I've, it's got to be over 50 times. It's just like coming to America, it's got to be way over 50 times. Because yeah. like, I can recite the, the dialogue. <laughs> so yeah, those yeah. are two impactful movies in my life and coming to america is so completely opposed in its worldview you know like it's sunnier and looser and yeah. it's almost it's almost got like this sort of borscht belt shtick going on mm-hmm. in the broadness of the performances yeah but someone did point out uh, not too long ago because it's its 30th anniversary this year yeah uh that um it presents a the, the comparison was to Black Panther. Like, that Black Panther is the first movie in 30 years to imagine... Could you imagine? ...a fictional African kingdom. Everywhere or, it was Wakanda versus Zamunda. Yeah. <laughs> which, how are you going to dress up to go to the theater to see Black Panther? Yeah, and people were representing Zamunda, which is just such a weird position to take that they, they're almost having this war between the two fictional kingdoms. Yeah. But it's a good-natured, sort of adorable war. Because one is technologically advanced and the other one is just sort of a peaceful, happy... Um, uh, resplendent is the wrong word. I'm just thinking, like, just they're, they're they have diamonds. They have they're 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 mineral rich. They're mm-hmm. one is one is mystical and the other one's is, like satire. You know? Yeah, exactly. yeah and, it's just invented to be silly, but right. also and the other one based off of like real facts, like mm-hmm. real facts, like you know the door, like the door Malaji, right? Yeah, the, the door Malaji is a part of is uh, based on this group called the Dohomi. Right when the Dohomi clan mm-hmm. or the army or the they were, they were um, in position to protect the king of Benin in the 1600s. Okay. I knew there was a historical president, but I didn't know. Yeah, so reason. it's like they they've taken from history, and created. Yeah, this wonderful film. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was really happy. I you know haven't had the chance to talk about the film on on the podcast yet, but mm-hmm. I was amazed to see that the movie leans into the thing that the comics could never really address, which is that an African nation remaining removed during slavery mm-hmm. while while Europeans and Americans are coming and taking yeah. Africans from other countries. And, the, and the, the responsibility of Wakanda that, or rather, I mean, it's, it's Killmonger's whole, right. uh, her, his whole perspective is shaped because he's witnessed the, the results from the other side. The results from it, yeah. What happens when you don't intervene is that people get hurt, people die, people are taken away, families are destroyed. And... Ethiopia did that. They weren't colonized. Because they avoided Because they the they also or? were smart enough to pit the British and um, the British and the Italians against each other. I didn't know any of this. Yeah. yeah. So that they would try and fend off for that land not to be colonized. Ultimately the Brits were like allies with Ethiopia as in it, um, Italy was always trying to colonize it, but the Brits would have more power. Huh. 
<laughs> but that was Ethiopia's way of playing the two sides. Yeah, there's <laughs> not been a movie made about that yet. That sounds right. like a great story. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the... But it reminded me of Wakanda. Sure. You know, like Wakanda does have its allies, right? And um, there are reasons. you ha- Sometimes you have to in order for your land not to be overthrown by yeah. colonizers, yeah? Yeah, and in a superhero movie to see that level of history engaged with. with the depth, and, right? Yeah, and of course you have the out because it's not really our world. You can give yourself a little artistic remove and mm-hmm. and play with the stories, but then for, oh, Ryan Coogler's a smart guy, of course. Smart. He's that so stuff. smart for him to base. Started out of um, Oakland, too, mm-hmm. where he's from. Yeah, I talked to him when Fruit, uh, Fruitville Station came out, mm-hmm. and he... I would never have guessed he'd end up where he has ended up, just because yeah. he didn't sound like he wanted to do studio stuff. He just wanted to make dramas. Right. And then two years later, Creed, and then Black Panther. It's just like, you're good but at it's this. it's studio, so... but it's drama. He's making his right? own thing, yeah. Like, yeah. he's doing his... Like, the, the, I mean, Creed and Black Panther are basically identical in that they are films that take a property and show you something that you never thought could be part of that property. Right. And they're told beautifully, and they're, they're strong narratives, and great performances and it's I mean they're, they're the best version of what they could be mm-hmm. but Fruitvale Station is so small and focused that one was like a boys it. in the hood for me yeah yeah what was that I had that years? same feeling that same reaction that same feeling and I've seen many films of you know black on black crime or all kinds of different things right you know mm-hmm. police brutality there's so many there's so many sure you menace to society there's so many but there is something about Michael B. Jordan that is so beloved, and he does such a great job in that character, um, that, you know, they they developed the family story so well that when that happened, everything dropped. Everything just fell out beneath us. Yeah. I didn't know what to do with myself. I sat in the theater after it was finished for about half an hour just crying. Oh, wow. That was hard. It's yeah, it's hard. Because also because we knew the story. I knew the story. I'd already seen it in the news. Right, so you knew where it was going. So I knew where it was going and so it was that eerie feeling constantly going, Oh, when is this gonna happen? Yeah. And when you knew it was about to oh it was awful. Yeah. It and was awful, but what a great film. Yeah. I was um I had been in San Francisco, I think, twenty four hours before I saw the film. It just happened that way. I They screened it the day I got back from a, a junket there. Mm-hmm. And it was just eerie yeah. to to realize that like I had been on the BART and I had seen all this stuff. And, you know, you can't... San Francisco in the summer is just a city of tensions because mm-hmm. the homeless problem there is, is worse. I think it's probably the worst in America wow. during the summer for some reason. It worse just than seemed, Washington. It, maybe. Maybe. I mean, they both have the same... I've never been to Washington in, in the height of summer. So mm-hmm. just the sense of despair and emptiness and the fact that there are so many people just not going anywhere, not doing anything. You really... Mm-hmm. you like the, it's, it's a systemic thing that is the result of government neglect, mm-hmm. which is the thing that brings me back to Boys in the Hood again, because mm-hmm. South Central is... Has it become a war zone because of police in '92? Anyway, mm-hmm. it had become this this place where the police only went if they were prepared to kill someone. There right. was never, there were no service calls. There was no sense that the community was a community. It was a, it was perceived as gangland, and no one went there. And right. Singleton making a movie about the people who live in the middle of it mm-hmm. and are not yeah. fully fledged anything's. And he's one of them. This yeah. tray is him. Yeah, that's what he just told exactly. the story. 
So mm-hmm. if you stick to the personal, it becomes universal, it becomes relatable, and that's his way in. That was his way in. But the result is a film that is, that now, I don't know, I mean, I'm trying to figure out, is the last real over the top because of the violence? Does it feel like it feels, like it's designed to pay off, right? Like it's a huge this, emotional, um, Boys in the Hood. Boys in the Hood. Huge emotional catharsis. Yeah. We are rooting for Doughboy once he abandons the illusion of, of being of a... being a gangster. Yeah, or well, when he embraces it, he leans into... The, I guess the illusion is pacifism. Like, he was never going to be... He's He seethes through the entire film. He's always about to go off. Mm-hmm. And if the movie but then, is... But when he kills, though... Yeah. He really, it's, He's like, what is this all even yeah, for? Yeah, it's not a good Do thing you know when it happens. Mean? If the movie is a struggle for his soul, he loses. He loses. But if it's a struggle for Trey's soul, he, wins. he comes out the other side. Mm-hmm. Right? He seems to... He, he's... Because he understood when Trey got out of the car. Yeah, his revelation. He didn't even, he didn't even get down on him for that. Yeah, and if that's Singleton, then his way out was making the movie. Yeah. Right. So. That's a good one. That's his. <laughs> that's his thing, and it's it turns this film where a lot of people die unnecessarily because of this arc of revenge that's going on back mm-hmm. and forth between the gangs. It tur- it puts the movie on a footing where you can see it as a triumph, as a happy ending for mm-hmm. the guy who made it. And it's a brilliant piece of marketing, but it right. also happens to be true. Right. That Singleton built a career out of not wanting to be Trey, or not wanting to be Doughboy, more not specifically, wanting and to be seeing, Doughboy, seeing what yeah. that is and getting away. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, you couldn't have explained that better. Yeah, it's this weird inspirational story. And, he, and, he, and I like how he, he started that as a kid. Because he's always questioning things, right? Mm. He's always questioning things. And he was, you could see that he could have gone one way or the other from he was in the classroom he was, right? And right. arguing about, you know, where we actually come from. It starts out with, you know, my dad says we come from Africa. And they're like, you know, I ain't no booty scratcher. And, you know, he's arguing yeah. with the other kids because he's trying to find his footing of of his history, his lineage, you know, he's trying, he's, it's a coming-of-age story for him. Mm-hmm. And so um, to constantly be questioning, like, if we came from um, this history, this em- this empowered history, like, why are we living in this right now? Why are we living in this garbage, this, this community where we're killing each other? So I, I like how it started out that way. Um, and it continued, and thank God he got out. Well, of course, we saw the results also with Singleton. He got sure. out. Sure. But a lot of people don't make it. Yeah. And I, he was lucky to have both his parents, not together, but he still had very powerful parents, very strong, very intelligent parents that would whoop his butt. And he was there was a fear that he had of them, you know, um, to not disappoint them. Um but not everybody has that. Yeah. yeah. Father and mother, they're both needed. Yeah, and the home situations for the kids in the film are kind of left a little... Um, they're sort of broad strokes. You don't really get to spend a lot of time at Doughboy's house and, and I know. see where he's from. And that's, there's a reason for But that. yeah, exactly. He doesn't, right. he, he doesn't want to be there either. He doesn't want to be there. It's not a loving home for him. For his brother, but not for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... I'm, Again, I'm impressed at the economy of storytelling where working on a very small budget, he managed to give you, through the script more than anything else, he manages to give us a sense of the other characters' lives, even if we don't spend a lot of time with them. Mm-hmm. And it's all just about what you've been doing and where you've been and, you know, 
casual dialogue exchanges where they just there doesn't seem to be very much besides the friendship, right? The, right. Three, the three core characters yeah. are their own world. They're mm-hmm. each other's support system. Mm-hmm. And when that fractures, everything goes to hell. Wow. It's just so... Uh, so it's like... And you, it, there's so much... There's so many layers. Yeah. It's good structure. Like he's, he's a good writer. Yeah. Have you... Have you t- I haven't taken in Snowfall yet. Uh, no. No, that's the FX series, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've taken it in. I, I had met with him to to um see if I was possibly gonna be part of the show. Um but it didn't it didn't go our way but uh Did yeah. you get to talk about that? Of course we did. So this is like this <laughs> but is like the closest I, I can I, I'm to. friends with uh, like his his youngest daughter's mother. She lives here. Okay. So whenever he's here we do all get together. Oh and, nice. And you know, it it's it's fun to discuss this because I mean, like here's a man sitting in front of me that affected my life in such yeah. a tremendous way, artistically, politically, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, you have to relate to him like a person instead yeah. of a mentor. Or I mean, I've I've, right. I've had the opportunity to meet people who've impacted my life in the same way. Artists who just cha- like literally changed the way I see the world, and yeah. it's always incredibly intimidating to just remember they're also people. Right. So how does that? Well, I mean, it, work? like that feeling, that fandom feeling. It was at the very beginning. I would say maybe five or six years ago, mm-hmm. and then now it's it's, it's John. Now it's okay. it's John. <laughs> you know, now I've gotten used to like him, um, but it's 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 still daunting. I'm like, oh my gosh, that, this is the person that made the, the my favorite film in the entire world that changed my whole perspective. On life and how I see myself mm-hmm. and what I want to do and how I want to tell stories and what more I want to find out about the world uh, and history. So it's it's just still a very high level of respect. Yeah. But I'm I'm like I'm so grown now too. I'm a woman. I'm a mother. I've lived. So there's no reason to fan out. <laughs> You know, like the high school thing always. Like a, a friend of mine is, told yeah. me once that there's a, a 15 rule. If you meet someone who is famous before you were 15, before you had a sense of yourself, it'll be Forever. harder to relate to them, no matter how old you are when you meet them. I I, I agree. Yeah, I agree. So I you totally guys, agree. When you do talk about the film, when it comes up, I mean, how does he regard it now at this point? Oh, he's still extremely proud. Yeah. Like you know, it's his flagship, right? Um, so and 26 yeah. years later, it's, that's. It's nuts. Yeah. Um, but and how difficult it was to make the film, not just um, because of the subject matter, but of how hard it was to get the film made yeah. with him being the director. They wanted to put another director in, and you know he had to fight for that. Like no one else can tell my story. Um, you know, it's literally his own life. It's just so. Yeah. I get it. He was young. The studio gets nervous about anything these days. Mm-hmm. Then, well, these days back then, but yeah, who else could possibly tell Nobody. that story? Only somebody from the hood. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like so, it it just had to take a chance and let him do that. But it's hard, you know, because you know names and the studios want to make sure money comes back, and when you have to fight that politics, it's it's a slippery slope. I've had to fight that politics way too many times, and I don't. I just 
I let go because I just I'm trying to have fun. I don't want to actually have to hate this industry. So just it's much easier for me though in, in the actress, mostly being in an actress chair as opposed to a director chair, mm-hmm. right? Or a writer's chair, yeah. right? But if it's something you want to do, yeah, something I want to do, I'm just trying to figure out a way to do it myself. Yeah, I don't want to knock out anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's necessary. Boy, I mean. Tupac and, and John Singleton came to blows a lot. Really? Physical fights. I didn't know that. Yes. <laughs> a lot. I think it they is. were friends, but they were still always fighting. Yeah. Well, I was, I mean, when you brought up coming to America before before today, we, you'd mentioned the list of things, and I I went and read up on my trivia, and it's like, oh, that's right. Yeah, Eddie Murphy and John Landis came to blows on coming to America, of too. Of like These weird, tempestuous relationships. That, yeah. It happened, but to be in a fist fight with Tupac, I think, is probably an honor at this point. Probably, it's a story at this can, point, yeah, it's a story you can at die this point, out on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at this point. But yeah, he was supposed to. I remember they had they had a big fight when uh, he was uh, Tupac was supposed to be the person who led Higher Learning. Remember that? Movie? Right. Yeah. Yeah, but Omar Epps. Epps. Was, yeah. Yeah, he's the one who did it. Yeah, yeah, and Tupac did Poetic Justice, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was supposed to be Tupac and Higher Learning. I mean, anything Tupac did notice in that very short time was epic. Yeah. <laughs> Point of justice, gridlock. Yeah, um, nobody remembers right? gridlock Juice. now. It was so good. Right. Like, everything he did, whether he was playing a love interest of somebody or playing a gangster, he was amazing. Yeah, he had amazing presence. He, got, he could just be charismatic sitting still. Yeah, there was this whole... I mean... I, I don't even know how to describe it, but that second wave of um, black cinema mm-hmm. in the early 90s, New Jack City, yeah. kind of being at the outlier of it where it was still a genre film and it was sort of overplayed, but it caught on anyway. Because that was the 80s, right? Yeah, it's it was like 1991. Yeah, it was later than I, it's always later than I think it was. Right. Um, but it was the one that introduced, like, that was the real. Chris Rock. Yeah, that's right. He still makes fun of that scene Pookie. now. Uh, yeah, but that was like Wesley, one of Wesley Snipes' first big roles, right? Oh, like yeah. he, he, that was his that Scarface. That Jungle Fever, yeah. Yeah. Oh, of course it was Snipes in Jungle Fever. Yeah. I forgot. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's him at the end with the zoom in. Absolutely. Uh, good, so we brought that back around so I feel like <laughs> completed it. Uh, but yeah, well, we, I mean, we're sort of coming up to it now anyway, but, but the, the final question of the podcast is always the same, which is what, if anything, from Boys in the Hood have you borrowed or stolen or absorbed into your own creative DNA? Hmm, that's a great question. What have I absorbed into my DNA? That I can't ignore anything that's happening. I can't walk in this world and pretend that that brutality is not a part of my existence now. Even living in Canada, every day. It's made me just very aware so since then, it's like I've traveled. I've done a lot of traveling around the world to a lot of developing countries. Mm-hmm. And to me, I see a boys in the hood everywhere. So what that did was wake me up. Okay. So I can't be, I can't be asleep anymore. And so now with the awareness, I try to apply myself in some way with help, you know, through charity work or, you know, because I mean... I have an organization that I belong to that we go to Haiti every year called Third World Awareness. And we go to the poorest ghetto in the Western Hemisphere called Cité Soleil. 
and it is nuts. People don't even move in there. They, you die there. It's nuts. And we're the only group in the entire world that can go into that place. Mm-hmm. No other charity can go in there. Mm-hmm. And, we're, and we're protected by the gangs. <laughs> and it's an outreach. I mean, yes. what, is, what is it that you guys do? We, we, there's a school that we work with there. Um, so we help to develop a lot of, like, we, we built the school and then we um, pay for the children to go to school and the teachers. And um, we develop a lot of the programs, especially when it comes to art um, and a lot of the sports programs. And we feed a lot of the community. We've now started this whole outreach where we we feed a thousand. We fed a thousand last year. And it's about 1,500, almost 2,000. But what happens is that they don't eat all the food on their plate. They always share. So that 1,000 turns into like 3,000 people that would be fed because Haitians don't eat all the food on the plate. They always leave a little bit for somebody else to eat. It's beautiful. So this film led me to the awareness of what's happening globally that I can't ignore anymore. And I have to find some way to be a part of it some way to be a part of lessening, ending the violence in some way by letting somebody just eat for that day. That's great. I mean, it's it's great that you can do that, that there's a way. Right. And I think everyone can if you really want to. If you really want to. You know, um, it's just just little by little. Uh, but yeah, that, I think I took that I took that away from the community. It's like, we, unless we help each other, Who's going to help us? Yeah. Right. Have you told Singleton this? I mean... Yeah, we have these conversations. Oh, that's great. Yeah, Yeah, I'm sure he'd love to to know he inspired you. Yes, absolutely. And that's, that's, that's what, like, our first times meeting, that's all that we were, we would talk about. And then, so now it's just branching out into, you know, everyday conversation because now we're getting to know each other more and more and I tease him all the time like when are you going to write that project for me (laughs) like and he's always laughing and I'm like I'm not even joking yeah (laughs) I'm not even joking like when are we working together I'm on it I'm ready (laughs) and so I think eventually it'll happen it's just always takes the right project um to come along but I'm definitely infected by his genius that's great. Yeah. I, I mean, I love it when people bring a, a film onto the show that they can, not just, not the, not something that they simply enjoy, but that means something to them that's really changed yeah. them. It's always nice. It's always nice. <laughs> but, I mean, it's the reason why I do this. Yeah. There's no, it's, if it was just like, you know, oh yeah, I'm going to get big money here and there, I probably would be hugely rich a long time ago, but it, I remember, um, seeing an interview with Denzel Washington a long time ago, because that's like my idol, right? And um, and when I met him, he's the one who kind of put me on the path of what schools to like apply to. Oh, yeah. Like he like literally took me under his wing while he was here shooting George, um, John Q. Oh, yeah. And so he put me in that place. I was like, oh, I want to do this thing, but I don't know how. And so he's like, did you ever look at schools in New York, you know, because you know you get to live in New York, and you get you get, you get a chance to grow up there, and, and while you're learning your craft, and I, and I was like, how am I going to do that with a child? Like, you know, I'm a young mother, and he's like, oh, you figure it out, and it did, it happened. Um, so, like, to come back to watching these people still that they've <clears throat> affected your life so much, 
he said, I will, how you ever you start your career and the roles you choose will follow you. And so that's what I've tried to do as much as possible for my whole career. It's like I'm willing to go, yeah, no. Like, oh, they're paying us. I don't care. That doesn't represent who I am. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good operating system. Like, yeah. It's a good base to start from. Absolutely. And with Darken, like Darken, like, I saw that and I was like, okay, there's some nice grit. There's some stuff that I can work with. And I and I got to build her. Like, I got, I gave her an accent, uh, you know. Um, my father's, I'm like Nigerian, mm-hmm. so I gave her, the, you know, an African accent and... When I came in, the director, Audrey Cummings, she was just like, what? And I was the first person. <laughs> and so I felt sorry for everybody else came after me because I was ready. I even had makeshift weapons and a, this is warrior. But like I got to build her and, and her animal and what animal that she would work with. And I brought that onto set all the time. And then it's just, it, just, it just worked. And Audrey just gave me whatever I needed to play. And that's, it's just the, the, that preparation for films like this, people like Denzel to watch their work. That's, that's the path that I chose, no matter how long it takes. Mm. Yeah. You know, I just came back from watching him yesterday, because that's where I went. I went to New York to see the Iceman come out. Oh, how is it? Incredible. Okay. <laughs> Four hours. I know, I kind of figured it would be good, but... And I'm right here. Like, he's right there. And I'm right here going, just being spit on. <laughs> and me and my friend were like, yes, yeah, that's, that's Denzel right there. This is, it. this is the best acting class. Rather than pay that big money to go to acting classes, mm-hmm. to spend hours with somebody saying, you know, this is what you need to do to make it. Why not just pay that money, sit right front row center, and watch your favorite actor do their thing? And spit on you. And spit on you. <laughs> In the best possible sense. I mean, because they're so, there's so much going through their veins. I did that with Mark Rylands. I did that with Viola. I just hop over to New York and I just go and just watch and learn. Yeah. So awesome. Best acting school is, is to, as I understand it, is to connect with the energy, right? Mm-hmm. Even if you're not in the scene yourself. So right. of course. Watching yeah. artists, 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 artists. And there's so much to do in the city. Toronto's so great for that. So I get to go to the National Ballet all the time. I'm always going there. I'm always seeing opera. I'm always going to Corner Hall because they've got an amazing sound system and they've got like beautiful bands in there. Mm. So it's it's always important for the artist to feed their artistic soul. And it, it, it also lessens a lot of the ego. When you watch other people in their element, it makes you know you've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of work to do. My thanks to Olenike Adelie who you can see in Darken, playing in theaters across Canada right now. You should also check out her Canadian Screen Award-nominated performance in Darren Curtis's Boost. That's available on demand and on iTunes. You can follow Olunike on Twitter at Olunike, just Olunike. And you can find Boys in the Hood on Blu-ray and DVD from Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. The Criterion Laserdisc is slightly harder to find. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.